Everywhere I go, people keep mentioning the name Cosmo Sheldrake to me. Sam Lee did it first, and then I heard him. Cosmo, I mean, playing away in the background of Sam Lee's extraordinary live-stream Nightingales event. And then Johnny Flynn, when we went walking with him, said, you must meet Cosmo Sheldrake. And the reason they wanted us to meet him was because he is a man who loves the natural world and engages with it and records it and uses it in making his music. And he is a multi-instrumentalist, a composer and a producer. And we're going to go for a walk with him in the woods near his home. Stay around here. Cool. Just gonna grab. Actually, I might, might maybe need a hand with the ironing board. I'll check first, I might be all right. I might just um, ask what you're doing, Cosmo. Good sure. morning. Good morning. Um, you, you seem to have an ironing board <laughs> I, I in the shed. Yeah. Um, I do. Yeah, I'm just. Uh, is moving. this your studio? This is. Yeah. You're going to for us. You're kindly going to move your ironing board and your keyboards <laughs> out into the wood just around the corner here. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Do you, want to, do you want me to give you a hand with the keyboard? Potentially. I'm just going to untangle a few things here, and then um, actually, yeah, one thing you could. So are you used to setting things up in the outdoors? I mean, is this something that you do the whole time? Quite often, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, no, I'm actually very used to it. Well, I'm fortunate enough to be able to sort of power all my stuff from batteries and be able to kind of move it around. So what have you got on the ironing board here? So I have a loop pedal, a little mixer, and then a couple of MIDI keyboards and buttons and knobs, and then an audio uh, interface, a sound card. And then the keyboard that I brought out. And then I'm going to set that up on another little thing next to me. And then, um, and then I'll have my computer and then a little microphone. Fantastic. That'll be, that'll be everything. And I, I've heard that you do gigs sometimes to places as well as to people. Yeah, I quite like the idea of trying to... Um, trying to uh, reintegrate especially because a lot of the music I'm about to play is recordings of birdsong a lot of which were taken from around here so reintegrating the recordings back with the places which they came from which um, I think is quite a satisfying thing to do. There's a sort of interesting juxtaposition isn't there between all this electronic equipment 
and then the natural sounds. Mm -hmm. Why does it intrigue you so much to put those two things together? There's a, there's a concept that um, Stephen Feld, he's this anthropologist and ethnomusicologist, he, he talks about schizophonia, um, which is separating of sounds from their sources, which basically is what happens when you record a sound and digitally reproduce it elsewhere. And I think, or despite the fact that there's loads of electronic equipment, in a way it's an attempt to kind of get over that, trying to then take that sound that's been separated and then kind of reintegrate it afterwards. Is sometimes, in order to do that, you need um, speakers in order to be able to then play them back in that place. So, also, it's just in this modern era, it's just, it's just one of the ways I've found of being able to kind of get what's inside my head out um, without the use of many other people and, and expensive recording equipment. So what are you going to play? I think I'm going to just improvise using some recordings of um, endangered birds. Thank <laughs> you. 
so wonderful and it was like here we are on this December day with leaden skies and actually the birds are really quiet here but you suddenly conjured up the spring mm -hmm. you know with all, with all that bird song it's beautiful how did you record all those birds I mean a lot of them I just some of the robins and stuff that were in there were from around here and some um, were from archives as well and some were licensed from different people and different... So I didn't record absolutely every one of them. But then the Nightingale I recorded actually in Sam Lee's Singing with Nightingale event. Um, I think this is all from Kent. Let me just turn that. So this is all one Nightingale but just different extracts of the Nightingale. And then it's kind of... Each extract will, will maybe exist over a period of five notes or... And then at a certain point, a different part of the song will come in. And then it kind of... Essentially then when you kind of play a big... You get a kind of chorus effect or like a kind of prepared piano or choir of, of Nightingale. So you can play the Nightingale song and change the Nightingale song through your keyboard? Yeah, essentially. So you can, yeah, different um, intervals or different places up on the keyboard, you can... There's different qualities of the sound. Kind of um, extracts, so yeah, you can. It gives it a bit of variation, so it's not just one small note then sped up and slowed down across the keyboard. So, and you made an album called Wake Up Calls, which is very much in this mode, isn't it? E each track featuring a different endangered species, a bird species from the United Kingdom. Why did you want to do that? Well, I mean, a number of reasons. Apart, apart from anything else, I just I love bird song, and it was just it. I was moved to make music out of birdsong. But also I think there's a fish ecologist who's been really inspiring to me. He's been doing this work um, called Steve Simpson. Um, and he, he's done this work in Indonesia where he, he takes recordings of healthy coral reefs and he plays them to in um, degraded reefs. And the sound of the healthy reef encourages the fish to return and then start grazing the algae again and then bring the reef back into a, um, more of a balanced, healthy state. So. So I, I'm. So sound is having an impact on regeneration. The, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I don't think there's an equivalent necessarily, or a direct equivalent in birds. But one time I was playing a, some cuckoo sounds up in the woods up there, and this is May, early May, and the week, a few days later, there was a cuckoo singing right up there. And so I, I'm not claiming that it was called in as it was migrating along and just heard a song and landed, but 
But I think, I don't know, I just, I'm, a, I'm aware of the fact that if humans are more conscious about the way that they contribute and um, engage with the sound environments that we're in, rather than just this kind of mindless, unconscious pollution, um, that's all too often the case, then I think it, you can engage in a kind of dialogue or um, kind of interspecies. I don't know what. You mentioned fish. Do you have any fish music that you could share with us? Yes, I do, yeah. Um, so I've got some of the recordings of that um, Steve Simpson's of some of his coral reefs that I mentioned just um, a while ago and, and some blue whales and some uh, longhorn sculpins and some oyster parrot fish and some uh, um, bucktooth, bu sorry, bucktooth parrot fish and oyster toadfish. So that's an oyster toadfish on the kick drum there. And then this is a bucktooth parrot fish. Wow. Um, and they're fish that live in coral reefs. So again, it was kind of trying, making music from the reef environment and fish that inhabit the reef. And this is a less gentle environment, obviously. This is a powerful, quite aggressive sound. Yeah, well, they basically make the sounds by forcing water out of their swim bladders. So this is the sound of an um, oyster toadfish forcing water out of its bladder. And then this is the bucktooth parrotfish, which goes around crunching coral reef with its beak. And then the longhorn sculpin, which is, this is just a little extract of, it does sound like a horn, it's just kind of And I just took one little bit of it and... There's the longhorn sculpin and then this the blue whale here. kind of got a melancholy tinge to it. certainly it? does, yeah. And then this is a humpback. Um, it's actually three humpbacks. There's one there, and then I've got two more, and these faders here, so I can kind of slide in. Kind of choir of humpbacks. primeval about it and yet so contemporary so current mm -hmm. as well that's what's so extraordinary it plays with your perceptions because you know, you're hearing these sounds of nature but you're hearing them in a very electronic way mm -hmm. I mean they, they have so much charisma and character and um personality and the sounds you know so it's, it's it's very satisfying to be able to work with something which already gives so much rather than starting from a kind of blank slate in a studio with a synthesizer and a sine wave it's um so for me it's much more um rewarding working with these kinds of sounds
You mentioned the Nightingales earlier, and I think in that Sam Lee Nightingales event, you were improvising live with the Nightingale. Yeah. What's that experience like? Well, just extraordinary, really. It's, um, I mean, just apart from the else, how, how they seem so just curious and, um, and up for it. And, you know, they can be five feet away from you, um, just going for it. And, and then I was playing, I was improvising with other nighttime singing birds, not using Nightingales, because I didn't want to completely bamboozle them and as a lot of that song is so territorial. So you were playing birdsong to the nightingale? Playing birdsong to the nightingale, but mainly owls and robins and um, missile thrushes and other things that sing at night time, but things that wouldn't chase it out or make it aggressive towards me or anything. And did you get the sense that it responded to what you were doing? Very much so, yeah. I mean, I think birds are very, particularly birds like blackbirds, they, they're call and response kind of creatures. And I've noticed certainly playing sounds of blackbirds in, in the woods and stuff that particular motifs that um. In the recordings I'm using, will then be picked up and then echoed around by other blackbirds, and um, and I think it's the same with nightingales as well. There's you you get the sense that they respond very much to the musical phrases you're using, and and I was as much as possible trying to respond to to their song as well. So I mean, it definitely felt like something was happening in between us. It wasn't just me, sort of, you know, trying so to play could, along. So could it be? Do you think that bird song will change as a result of what you're doing? That you're actually sending out there new motifs that birds are picking up on and that could go into their language. Well, I mean, I, I don't doubt it. There's, um, there's some striking examples of this in, in Australia where um, lyrebirds, you know, those famous imitating birds, that um, they, were, they found lyrebirds that had snatches of long extinct indigenous languages, you know, that birds were actually documenting extinct human culture rather than humans documenting extinct birds. And, and I think there's, there's famous examples of, um, of the same thing in the Amazon, um, Alexander von Humboldt, actually transcribed some birds, I think it was a parrot or something that had learned some indigenous languages and, and there's some transcriptions in one of his journals of these um, birds speaking human. Um, and so, I mean, these language is very much a socially acquired thing. If you raise a blackbird in isolation, not socially with its peers and stuff, it will sing a very stunted, much, um, much more restricted song. Would you like to go for a walk? Let's do it. Down okay. Cosmo, where are we? So we're in uh, Bowlesbury Wood, which is a, a wood kind of straddling the border between Hampshire and Dorset. Um, but we're technically in Hampshire. And we're very close to the new forest here, aren't we? Very, yeah. I drove up through there, not doffing my cap to the ponies as I came. It's fun, isn't it? Uh, and what kind of a wood is this? Well, it's a mixture of plantation. There's Douglas fir and larch plantation. And then this is kind of an old coppiced wood here. And then, and then it goes over the hill and then it leads down through a kind of another larch plantation into this big beech plantation. And then up that way, there's lots of old, just really ancient oak and mixed kind of um, old um, deciduous woodland. And I wonder if you come out here and listen. Certainly, yeah, since lockdown, I've, it's become a kind of meditation practice I, in, in some ways. It's, um, I, become, I became really interested in just trying to listen to everything at once, which I think when you're listening to a dawn chorus or an evening chorus or something like that, there's almost no way of focusing in on any individual. It becomes almost impossible 
And I think so much of the time when we listen, we're trying to listen to make out that specific sound against the backdrop of everything else. And it's very rare to actually just try and listen to everything all at once. And through doing so, I've, um, you just become so aware that crazy polyphonic, just nature of everything, the way we hear the world is sounds coming from every single place at every single time. Um, I did some work with this amazing kind of bird language person and tracker man in America called John Young. And he talks about how if anything happens in the forest, the birds respond almost like ripples um, in a pond, you know, a rock falls in a pond, ripples go out. And he'd be able to tell if a particular kind of alarm call sound started happening. He'd so if a predator's coming or something like that? Yeah, exactly. But he'd, he'd be able to tell you that there was a red-tailed hawk coming from that direction. It'll be here in three minutes. Um, <laughs> because, or if, it, if, the, if, the, if the predator was ground-based or, or flying, or um, just by the particular nature of the, the texture of the kind of alarm call. Um, and again, that's, that's these, these, these ripples that you, you listen to the response of everything at once. Again, just anything that moves, it kind of sends a movement out. So, so yeah, that's one of the things that I've been trying to do or as I listen to things is just trying to generalise my focus. And is, it has, has music always been a part of your life? Was it something that was in your family life when you were young? Yeah, so I mean, my, my dad is a piano player and an um, organist and then he comes from a, a line of organists as well. So and he's quite a well-known person, isn't he, your dad? Yeah, I guess he's a, he's a biologist and sometimes can be reasonably controversial. A controversialist, yeah. yes, um, the same in the scientific community. Yeah. Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah. Um, um, and, and what about your mum? There's music there, isn't there? Yeah, so my mum, Jill Pass, she teaches Mongolian overtone chanting um, as a kind of meditational practice. Hang on, what is Mongolian overtone chanting? It's when you sing the harmonics, you amplify the harmonics. So you'll sing a fundamental note and then you'll sort of slightly constrict your throat and you'll amplify the harmonics above it. So you hear these kind of bell-like flute tones moving above the fundamental. Right. Can you do that? A bit. I mean, I can a tiny bit. Could yeah. you demonstrate it? I can try, yeah. Um. That's wonderful. How, what are you doing with your throat muscles when you do that? You kind of squash the back of your throat. You kind of put pressure on it. You kind of tighten it up. And then essentially it's just the vowel shapes. Um, you, go, you cycle through the vowel shapes and each vowel shape kind of amplifies a particular harmonic that's present in the fundamental, but normally just kind of disguised. So I'm thinking of a, a kind of cacophony in the house when it, with your father playing the organ or the piano and your, your mother with her chanting mm -hmm. workshops. Was that what you experienced as a young boy? Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's always very bizarre sounds coming from her workshops. And... And then also she, when she was in the 70s, she did quite a lot of work with Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who's one of the sort of um, inventors of electronic music as we know it now. And so there was also this kind of current of experimental electronic. There's all his scores kind of all over the walls. and Because um, the scores are not conventional scores, are they? Absolutely Stockhausen's not, no. Score. No, they're what, kind of like works of art. I mean, they're extraordinary to look at. Um, so what effect did it have on you growing up with all this, well, not just music, but really inventive and mould-breaking music going on in the house? 
Well, I mean, I guess in lots of ways it was, I mean, my main kind of, my dad mainly plays Bach. So, so most of the music was basically being bathed in the sound of Bach. And then, but I grew up, I mean, I, I, when I was seven, I started playing boogie woogie and jazz and sort of blues piano. And my teacher was obsessed with New Orleans music. So I became rapidly obsessed with Dr. John and Professor Longhair. And I also learned completely by ear, so I still can't read or write music. Or, and, and, and I gather you play a lot of different instruments. Um, you've yeah. brought the guitar with you now, but I mean, I, I read that you play 30 instruments. I'm, one of those things, it's like the, in, the internet is one of those echo chambers. I don't remember ever actually saying that to anyone. But um, Is it true? I mean, I've, I collect instruments, so I've got a lot of different kinds. And I mean, to varying degrees, I wouldn't be able to hold my own in a, in a jam on many of them. But um, for the purposes of recording and writing simple parts and stuff, then... I don't know, it depends if you You've count. You've got a sousaphone. I have a sousaphone. Yeah, come on, let's try and listen to some of them. What else do you play? <laughs> I have a sousaphone, I've got a bass clarinet, uh, clarinet, I have a trombone, um, the piano, the drums, the double bass, um, guitar, banjo, fiddle. Um, penny uh, whistle. Penny whistle, duduk. What's um, a duduk? It's like an Armenian double reeded, um, uh, kind of, it sounds like a clarinet, but that, a uh, double reeded instrument made out of apricot wood. Um, and, and then all sorts of sort of obscure percussion instruments and didgeridoo and, um, and then... You've got some bones you said with you as yeah. well. and then some bones. Um, I mean, lots of odds and ends that I'll learn the kind of bits and bobs. I have a koto and I have... Um, a koto? Um, What's one that? of those kind of um, South Asian harp-like instruments that you play that you can kind of long tabletop kind of like that kind of sound. And what about singing? Where does singing fit into the repertoire? Is that just another instrument as far as you're concerned? In lots of ways, yeah, I do consider singing to be a kind of instrument. I, I became really interested in and inspired by kind of vocal improvising um, as a tool, as a way of working with groups as well. I did quite a lot of um, facilitation work, working with young people and, and these youth camps in Canada and America. Lay your head where my heart used to be Hold the earth above me Lay down in the green grass Remember when you loved me Come closer, don't Stand beneath the rainy skies The moon is over the rise Think of me As the train goes by Clear the thistles and brambles Whistled in he rambled There's a bubble of me And it's floating in thee God took the stars And he tossed them Can't tell the birds From the blossom You'll never be free of me He'll make a tree from me Stand in the shade of me 
Things are now made of me The weather vane will say It smells like rain today Describe the skies to me Describe the skies to me So when the skies fall Mark my words We'll catch a mockingbird But beatboxing is some, another technique that you you've used so yeah I, I'm at these youth camps uh, a good friend of mine and a big musical mentor I figured my life called Rupinder Singh Sadhu taught me how to beatbox when I was about 14 I never got down the rabbit hole of all that crazy technique into the, the beatbox world champions and all that kind of stuff but for me it was just a, a, a way of making percussion sounds or uh, using the body and the voice as a kind of percussion instrument can you show us <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! <laughs> and, and and when you were learning that, mm -hmm. tell us tell us about your teacher and what what sort of advice he gave you. Let's think. I mean, you you have all these things like um, these phrases like. Um, Boots and cats and boots and or born to be clever, too clever to be too clever, or these things that kind of help your mouth get round where they need, where you're, where you need to emphasise the certain things. And then after that, it's just a really you just, I mean, it just catches if it if it catches. And, and then I just walked around for years, just doing nothing else, and just everywhere I went, I just sort of make a beat just to kind of walk to. This is called Folk on Foot, so I'm interested in whether folk music has played a part in your sort of multifaceted musical journey. Very much so, yeah. Um, I think in and around the time I started learning the guitar, I was about 17 when I started playing the guitar, and then the next thing I picked up was the banjo. We spent quite a lot of time in America and, and worked with these people who used a lot of kind of bluegrass or American folk tradition um, as part of their kind of John Young with this bird language stuff. He was an amazing musician and would bring together an amazing band of people. So I got into playing banjo and this kind of bluegrass tradition and this Appalachian kind of old time uh, folk tradition. And then through that, kind of discovered that a lot of those songs were actually English folk songs that had wended their way over and somehow been preserved in the Appalachian mountains in a more true state sometimes to how they'd been, you know, discovered and rediscovered in England. And, and so I kind of found my way back into English folk music from American folk music, and particularly from this kind of old-time Appalachian, kind of very raw ballad tradition, and um, that kind of modal, um, kind of unaccompanied singing that I, I particularly, particularly love. And who were you listening to at that time? Well, my way in was also through kind of Pete Seeger's he has one particular record which is much rawer and less happy than some of his other ones and it's just a lot of these really dark kind of ballads. And then I got into um, some of those kind of early American, the anthology of American folk music and Smithsonian archive stuff and then people like Anne Briggs and, and Joan Byers and, and then Shirley Collins and 
Um, and then also got quite into the song collecting angle and thinking about um, trying to trace these songs and where you know how they how they grew and evolved and transformed as they were moved across different places and landscapes and times and um, and then sort of around that time met Sam Lee and um, or re-met Sam Lee I should say and then and then kind of suddenly became aware of this you know what he was up to so then it kind of opened up and diversified and um, and then yeah I kind of I started um, just weaving more folk music into the my brother and I who's an accordion player um, we we sort of have a little repertoire of songs that we sing together and so yeah it kind of trickled through into it quite in quite a big way uh, I wonder if you'd maybe sing a, a folk song for us here in the wood because we we stopped now in a big clearing and there's a, a there's a ladder for climbing up the tree there mm -hmm. um, do you think you might like to perch on that and sing for us absolutely yeah and, um, what are you going to sing? Climb up the ladder. I'm going to sing a song. It's a, actually a sacred harp song. It's it's a hymn of the sacred harp tradition, which is this beautiful kind of harmony singing. From it originated in England, but then kind of blossomed in the States and the um, kind of East Coast. Um, and it's just this beautiful kind of modal, simple way of getting big groups of people to sing in harmonies. But obviously, there's only one of me. But I'll sing. It's called Barnet. Uh, for some reason, it's called Barnet sacred harp song but I'll climb up there and sing the song from and the sound here will be rather interesting won't it so yeah we're standing in a in a beautiful kind of beach plantation a big beech grove um, and all the beech trees are around a similar age and have a it's quite wide and open so it has this beautiful kind of reverberant um, echo or reverb sound here so hopefully I'm gonna sing it and um, we'll record it from a little distance just so you can kind of experience the woods And the, the reverberation here is so wonderful, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. So how, how does it feel standing up there singing it? Great. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, really good. King of the castle. Yeah. Mm. Well, if you come down, we can carry on with our walk. Sounds good. But I think it's a, it's a first for folk on foot. It's the first time that somebody's climbed halfway up a tree <laughs> in order to sing a song for us. So thank you very much, Cosmo. Sure. So, sure. so we, we're recording actually with three different microphones here. There's one that you got very close up on on your clothes. Uh, there's another one which Natalie is holding over here. And then we put one on the stand just at the other side of the clearing. Why do you think that's going to make a difference to the way we record? Well, for me, I'm, I've, I've been interested in a while just for trying to capture the sounds of spaces. And that's something that... Um, just, I mean, I got into it actually when I was field recording in Canada and the, these ravens make this particular kind of bell sound. They go, Doop! and you just hear that kind of reverberate through the, through the natural kind of forest reverb. And, and it's just such a beautiful kind of creamy um, reverberance. And then just because of the, the, the fact that all these trees are around a similar age and there's this big kind of wide open space, I think there's a particularly nice reverberance here. But I, I kind of got into it because there's this extraordinary recording that someone called Louis Sano made um, of the Aka Pygmy singers from, um, from Congo, from the Aturi forest. He has this extraordinary recording of women gathering mushrooms where he's just recording, there's just a microphone, you can't hear anything other than this mad, dense forest kind of environment, crickets, birds. And in the far distance, you start to be able to hear these women kind of enter the earshot and they're, they're singing to each other as they're walking through the forest, picking mushrooms. And, and it's, it's this, um, Bernie Krauss is this amazing acoustic ecologist. He talks about how animals evolve to sing or vocalize in particular acoustic niches. So, so they're not directly competing with each other, whether that's rhythmically or frequency wise. And everything will leave space for each other. And just like everything's evolved specific physical niches, also um, acoustic niches. Also, it's quite radical not to, it's like what I was talking about earlier about trying to listen to everything at once. To have the, the object of the recording be so far in the background that it's not just right up in front of you. It doesn't exist in this artificial kind of um, quiet space that we like to make in studio environments. To actually capture something in its context where it exists and, and also particularly the way that that music evolved to also occupy its own space. You know, these people have been singing this kind of music there for so long that the animals and the music has arisen in a similar way to how birds and crickets leave each other space. The birds also leave the space for the humans. The humans also leave the space for the birds. And, so I just think it's really nice. I've just been getting more and more into trying to record things, but with the full kind of um, field of sound where, where, where you actually are, the kind of sonic watermark of a microphone will pick up about 50% of the, the signal coming to the microphone will be just reverberations. And so rather than trying to squeeze those out, just kind of celebrating them and also just having the focus of the recording be in the background, so to speak. Is, um, and I'm very conscious, actually, that we're here in December, so there are virtually no leaves on the trees. In fact, we've heard the leaves underfoot. Mm -hmm. In April or August, this would sound very different, wouldn't it, this space? Absolutely. It's full of blackbirds and, and very much alive and kicking birds somewhere. yeah. And the, and the canopy of leaves would make the reverberation sound different too, yeah, wouldn't totally, it? Yeah, totally, yeah. Shall we just listen quietly to what we can hear here? Because I think there are sounds in the background too as well. Mm-hmm dog barking. Mm -hmm. 
amazing how much well, human noise there is in this. The, 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 the intervention of man-made noise comes, the aeroplane, and the, you can hear cars, can't you? Mm -hmm. but, but you could hear quite a few birds, actually. Mm -hmm. I could hear quite a lot of birds mm -hmm. in the distance, um, possibly some crows or rooks, yeah. I think. Um, and then that dog yeah. <laughs> yapping away. Totally. But it's, it, it, it is fascinating, and uh, it, it is wonderful to stop and, and listen in a place and just try to orientate yourself by sound. Also to do it with microphones is a very different experience because the, the human ear is so much, is, is very good at focusing from that field of sound, what you're, what you're listening to. It's like at a dinner party or in a loud space, you can, you can zoom in on a conversation and block out the rest. But if you've got microphones on um, and you've got headphones on, a microphone turned on and um, headphones on, it's, it's, it's a completely different experience. The microphone turns everything up, it doesn't differentiate. So you hear everything much louder becomes much harder to focus. It's actually quite disorientating. Um, you can't tell whether things are coming from which direction. Um, but it's like having massive ears um, or huge ear trumpets and turning them right up. And it's, it's, a, it's a very different experience, actually, because you, you don't have the same ability to discern. You just listen to everything. And, yeah, very illuminating. It sort of casts the net much wider than just the normal ear. And do you feel the urge when you listen to a soundscape like that to start intervening? I mean, because you, you know, to start making something from it or to start, you know, playing music to it, or do, do, do you I feel mean, an urge to, to, to play with it? In a weird way, I'm quite the opposite. When, when I'm recording and got my headphones on, the second I do anything like breathe or snap a twig, or um, it feels like I kind of got to start from scratch. You know, even if there's plenty of human noise pollution going on and there's planes and stuff, there's something about just 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 the listening to what's there and um so i mean some situations that's not the case at all some situations if i hear a really rusty fan going tick -tick 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 -tick, and i very much want to add add something to it or get involved with it but especially when you're just sitting there with microphones and headphones on just field recording it's 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 almost like the the practice of trying to get the longest stretch of untouched just whatever's there but without me in it is is something that i um often feel like i'm trying to aim for but but also, I mean, I very often come and sit right here and put microphones down here and I've got long cables so I can run them up here and just put my headphones on and just sing and, and just um, it make the improvise and just record it in this reverberance. And I've used bits of that in various tunes I've made. So, so sometimes I do very much come and just sort of add to it too. But yeah, it depends on the mood, I guess. So we're emerging into a big open field now um, from the woods and the rain's starting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a pig farm just over there, which when we're downwind of on the wrong day, it sort of permeates Pungent. the whole, whole area, yeah. yeah. Now this, this looks like a spot for a song. This is what I was thinking, yeah. So I was taught to play the bones by an amazing Irish folk singer called Jerry Brady. He's, uh, he lives now in Dublin. He's from Dublin, but he, he went over to America as a bricklayer and a steeplejack, as a lot of Irish did. And, um, and he ended up meeting this person I've mentioned a few times, John Young, and they were, became firm friends. And he taught Jerry Brady was once standing in a sports bar somewhere in, um, I think it was New York State or New Jersey, um, where they'd all go after, after work. And John used to go and they did some work together being bricklayers and and Jerry turned to Johnny's like do you want to know how to silence the entire pub a lot of the people in the pub were Irish and he started singing this song um Spansel Hill with the bones and 
TVs turned off, everyone was silent, and it's just like the whole pub was just full of people just weeping. And he gave John a pair of bones, and um, so I was lucky enough to meet Jerry after the, f the first time that John and Jerry were reunited in 30 years or something, and they sung a song on the bones together. And so Jerry taught me how to play the bones, and is is still very much alive and kicking and going strong. He's in his 80s now, I guess. And, and are they actually made of bone? Yeah, these particular ones are made from cow shins. But traditionally, I think they were made from whale bones or also sheep ribs and all sorts of bones. But um, And they're, they're used as a percussion instrument. I mean, a bit like the spoons, I suppose, some people would recognise. Yeah, totally. Although Jerry would constantly remind us that um, the bones are one of the few instruments you can play in a session while maintaining your pint in the other hand. <laughs> so you play um, them in one hand? So you play them in one hand, unlike the spoons. Um, and they make this kind of clickety-clack. So you kind of clamp the one nearest your thumb into your, the bottom of your thumb with your middle finger. So that basically stays very still. And then this one is kind of held, but more roughly in place. And so when you then essentially kind of move this kind of almost figure of eight movement um, where you're offsetting your wrist against your elbow, and if you kind of move that fast enough back and forth, eventually you start to get this kind of clickety clack And then the next stage is learning how to kind of clamp it so you just get the So I'm going to sing a song now called uh, My Johnny Was a Shoemaker. My Johnny was a shoemaker and dearly he loved me. My Johnny was a shoemaker and now he's gone to sea with pitch and topsoil his hands and to sail across the sea. Stormy sea and sail across the stormy sea. His jacket was a deep sky blue, and curly was his hair. His jacket was a deep sky blue, yes it was, I do declare. And to weep the top sails up against the mast, and to sail across the sea. Stormy sea and sail across the stormy sea. One day he'll be a captain bold with a brave and gallant crew. One day he'll be a captain bold with a sword and spyglass too. And when he has his gallant captain sword, he'll come home and marry me. Marry me, he'll come home and marry me. Cosmo, it's been wonderful to hear your music and to experience the lovely beech wood here. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, thanks for having me. Cosmo Sheldrake in Bowlesbury Wood. Well, there are now more than 40 episodes of Folk on Fort for you to enjoy, so please delve back into the back catalogue if you haven't already heard them. And if you'd like to support us to keep walking, we are entirely dependent on our listeners to keep on the trail, so please become a patron. You'll get great rewards in return for a small monthly contribution that goes towards covering our costs. If you want to sign up for that, go to folkonfoot.com and then click on the Support Us button. We love making Folk on Foot. We hope you enjoy listening to it too.